All right. Um, I'm just going to set myself up a bit here so that I can be a, a bit more hands-free. I'm going to take this off as well. Um, if I can figure out how to do it. Okay. Um, before we start, while we're just getting um, set up, I just want to start with prayer um, before we engage in the next part of our service. Lord, I just thank you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for this particular moment of time that you have chosen for each of us who are here today to be present here. Um, And also for the fact that you have chosen to put us in this particular point of time in history. I pray that as we just take some time to reflect on the past, that you would be directing and showing us what it means to follow you here in the present. Amen. All right, so to give a bit of context, we might just come out so I can see you all a bit better. And I'm a bit short. Yeah, sure. Um, to give a bit of context to what we're doing, again, I know Tian's talked about it a little bit, but we're doing a, a four-part series over four weeks where we're looking at the question, what is church? Um, Massive question, and yet a simple question at the same time. And the reason that we're looking at this is this is actually a question that our broader church community has been asking over the last six months. There's been a section of people from our community at St. Clair that have been meeting once a fortnight separately to really mess around with the structures of church, with how we express church, for the purpose of really getting back to the guts and bones of what it actually means to be followers of Jesus as a collective. So to come together and ask that question. And part of our journey has been now coming back to the broader community of St. Clair where we meet and sharing some of those learnings. And so last week, uh, for those of you who were here, and Tian did actually... Um, already share this with us, but we focused on one, we looked at church through the lens of one particular um, topic. Can anyone remember what that topic was in a real simple form? Does anyone remember? What did we look at last week? We looked at the church in the context of... People are saying it just very quietly. Got to yell it out. The Bible. The Bible, Bible, that's right. So we looked at the church in the context of the Bible. So what does the Bible tell us about what the church is? And the heart of that, of that, um, of what we looked at last week, Jane and Jess were walking us through, and the place that they came to was looking at what God's vision or mission is and, and how they described that was that God's overall mission is to reconcile all of creation to himself. What do we mean by that? My understanding of what that means is that God is actively working to align and bring everything back to its intended purpose. That includes humans and all parts of creation. And where does the church fit into that concept? The church is one of the main agents that God uses to bring us towards his intended purposes. The, the church is what God is using as his primary agent throughout history to bring the world in alignment with his purposes. 
That, that sounds really nice and neat. It's not neat. It's a real messy process with a lot of ugliness and beauty in there, um, which I think most of us know from our own lives that the reality is that life is made up of a lot of mess and a lot of beauty. Um, so in looking at that concept today, we're going to continue on from looking at it in the context of the Bible to the next part of that story, which is looking at church from the context of history after Jesus ascended into heaven, right? So we've got, this con we've got a context where we have a group of people who've walked and lived with Jesus. Jesus has gone back to heaven and they are trying to figure out what it means to follow God's mission here on earth, to bring everything, all of creation into alignment to reconcile all things to God's intention. They're trying to figure out how to do that with the absence of Jesus for the first time. So today, we're going to look from that particular point of history all the way up until now, which is a monumental um, task to try and achieve. And it's something that if you went to Bible college, you would spend at least an entire semester's subject on this. So I just want to be clear that we're not, we're not attempting today to do a comprehensive overview of church history, but we're looking at it with a very specific intention in mind. Um, and I will, I will unpack what, what that is. But put broadly, we're looking at church history for the purpose of understanding and seeing what our collective story is. So this is a story that we are a part of. This is our legacy and our heritage. The same way that when we look into our individual families, we can see and understand things about ourselves more clearly. That is why we're looking at church history. That's why it is essential for us to understand where we've been in order to know where we're going. And if you don't understand where we've been and why, why we're here, why, why we are here today, and why we do things the way we do things, it's very hard to know how to move forward with, with um, taking in, uh, into account the wisdom of the past and also learning from the mistakes we've made and not blindly repeating the same things over and over again. All right. So uh, we're going to start with um, going through a timeline, which you have on the back of your sheets. Um, but before we start, there's a few things that we're going to look at as we look throughout church history. One of those is that history repeats itself in cycles. So nothing is new under the sun, <laughs> and we're going to see that again today. But the primary thing that, that we're going to take away from that is that the church gets to points throughout history where it loses its way, it loses its vision, um, and its purpose. And God seems to have this inbuilt mechanism that self-corrects the church back to its vision, back to its authentic heart of what, where God is taking it. And my, the most simple way that I can explain that is that God seems to have these prophetic figures throughout history who call the church back, who, who call them back. And the, it's, it's always a revelation, but it's always the same re revelation and it's radical every time we come back to it. And that is people coming back over and over again to remember that, hey, the core of what we believe is that Jesus died 
Jesus died to save us, to cover us, to bring us back into alignment with God. And there is nothing we need to do in order to attain that. And that is so simple and yet something that that is groundbreaking every time it is, it is spoken um, within different contexts. And it shakes and dismantles society in a way that draws us back to his vision. Another way that Martin Luther King, a American civil rights leader, puts it, that just gives another perspective on this same idea, is that he says, I am convinced that the arc of history bends towards justice. And it's this idea that no matter what seems to happen in history, there seems to be this, uh, this, this unforeseen force that draws things back into alignment with their intention and back towards good, no matter how bad things get. So that's what we're going to be looking at today. Um, so to start, we're going to, the first thing that we're going to look at is history seems to work in cycles, so let's, let's watch out for those. The second thing is that the structure of church changes in response to its context. That's something else that we really want to highlight today, is that church structure is not a stagnant thing. It is, hasn't been the same since 2,000 years ago to what it looks like today. And it seems to change in response to the context and needs of the community at the time. So that's something else we're going to look out for. We're going to look out for history seems to go in cycles and the church structure changes dependent on context. The third thing that we're going to look out for today is what are the warnings and the wisdom that we can learn from history as we wrestle with what it looks like to be the church today. All right, so they're the three things we're going to look for. Um, to start, we've got a timeline that we've done up here, and we've got it on your sheets if you do want to write it in yourselves as we go. Um, this is just a, a way of, of trying to visually represent some of the journey of church history. I know we've got very uh, varied levels of knowledge about church history here. It is one of those topics that if you've been to Bible college, you probably know a fair bit about and if you haven't, you may have very little understanding of what's happened in our in church history. Um, and so what we're going to start with is just, if people can call out anything, any event, moment, time, person that they, um, that they know from church history. And we won't be putting everything up because of time constraints today. But if you call out something that we are going to look at today, we're going to pop it on the whiteboard as a way to start. So can anyone think of anything that pops into your head related to church history? All of it, up until now. So the Reformation is one that Laura just said. That is on our timeline today. We're, yeah, so from Jesus. We're talking from Jesus up until now. So Jesus has ascended into heaven. What, that's probably one really um, maybe obvious uh, starting point. Where do you think our church history timeline starts? Ascension of Jesus. Yep, and yep, Pentecost. What 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 was that? What do we often talk about that time era being? That it was. Yeah, so we've got some the apostolic era. We've we've just given it a simple name of the early church. So. It's the start of a different expression of God's people. So we've got the early church, we've got the Reformation. Is there any other things people know from church history? 
Yes. So, up until Constantine, it's illegal. Yes. So, so in the early church, there was significant persecution, and it's an illegal religion up until about 312 CE. All right. The establishment of Christendom. The establishment of Christendom. <laughs> More broadly. Um, Where did that come from? The window. Is there anything else people can think of from church history? Pentecost. Yep, Pentecost. So that fits into that fits into that early church. We will. Yep. The Great Schism. The Great Schism. <laughs> David's got some cheap notes, but yeah. The Great Schism is in there. It's something we're going to cover. It's another just, just significant a great moment. <laughs> Monasticism, yep. Yep, so that fits into that that early. It covers probably the first 1,500 years, really, is the rise of monasticism, um, which basically just means uh, communities of believers who lived together with a very intentional purpose, and most of them lived under celibacy, although there are some differences in that. Uh, any Anything else that people know from church history? Can I ask you what year was the rise of monasticism? Oh, it's it's not really a it's across probably from around 300 CE all the way to the 1500s is when it um, was a fairly prominent movement. I'm sure there's people who have greater knowledge on that than me. Um, anyone else? Anything? We will go through this. We're not just going to leave them. We just want to get them up first. Anyone know anything that I'm probably throwing you off with our crazy uh, visual? But anything? Anyone know anything that happened post Reformation? Uh, yeah. So is it missionaries? Yep. Yep. So that kind of fits into here. We have whole lot of branches coming out, whole lot of expressions of Christianity spreading across the world. Um, what about us? What are we called? Baptist, Baptist Church. So we that, that's another expression that comes into church history, didn't come out of a void, came out of out of a process of of different historical events that happened. Uh, anything else? The production of the Bible in different languages. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a, yep, so that kind of, that fits into this era here. The Reformation was kind of the thing that sparked that particular translation. movement. Translation of the Bible into different languages. Um, all right, well, I'm just going to add in the other ones that we'll be looking at today, some of which are just my own words to describe some more big picture movements. Um, so we've got the early church between zero and 300, then we've got what I've called the church and state start to align, um, which is between about 312, we're just going to go 300 all the way up to, um, oh, really, it goes all the way up to the 1500s. But we're going to look at it starting here. Then within that, we're going to look at some key events that happen, which is the Council of Nicaea, which is in 325. We're going to look at... Uh, Sorry, I don't have it on this page. We're also going to look at um, Constantine, that's 312. 
We're going to look at Emperor Theodosius, um, which is in the late 4th century, which is 379. We're going to look at... We're going to look at the Great Schism, which happens in 1054. We're going to look at the Reformation, which is, I put here, 1517. The date can be a bit debated, but you get it's in the 1500s. Um, and then we're going to look at the Methodists today, um, which is actually in this funny little line we've got up here. I accidentally deleted it from your timeline, so if you want to add that little line, if you want to do this, you're welcome to. And that is 1738, and then we're going to move on and we're going to finish at now, okay? So we've got a long way to tra travel, and we're going to try and do it as quickly as we can. All right, so we're going to start where every good story starts at the beginning. This isn't the entire beginning, but it's the beginning of a new era for the church. Jesus has ascended into heaven, and we have a group of, we don't exactly know how many, at the very, very start, but we know there were over 500 eyewitnesses to Jesus resurrected after his death on earth. So we know there's this fairly small group of people who have seen Jesus die and they've seen him be raised to life and they've been impacted by that and they've started to gather within their local areas and meet together in homes in order to wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus now that he's no longer here to direct that process. So we've got some significant uh, things that happen in that time. We've got Pentecost, uh, which for those of you who may not know what Pentecost is, put very simply, it was, it was a miraculous event where some of Jesus' followers were up speaking about what had happened to Jesus and suddenly people in the audience who were there from all over the world and spoke all different languages could suddenly hear the, the people preaching in their native language. And we identify this to be God's spirit coming down on his followers in a new and powerful way. This era was also a time where there was a lot of miracles, a lot of healings, a lot of, of amazing things happening which were very much a clear evidence of God's spirit being present on his people and really shook up the society. One of the other things um, that was distinct to this community was within 15 to 30 years of Jesus ascending into heaven, these communities came up with their own very short statement of faith, which was to remind them about what it was that they believed as a collective. And so it's very simple, but it was something they would recite when they gathered together. And this is what it says. It says, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he reappeared to Cephas and to the twelve. It goes on, um, but we're just going to look. That's, that's the core of, of what it says. And that is the core that they would continually come back to, that Jesus died, that he was raised to life, and that people had seen it with their own eyes who were amongst that community. Some other things that were distinct about this particular era was that there was a very high level of resource sharing that happened in this community, so much so that we have writings that say 
that there was no poor among their community because everybody threw their resources in so that everybody had enough. And not only did they care for their own poor, but they actually started to extend out and care for the vulnerable, the most vulnerable and oppressed within society by bringing them and caring for them that were outside of being followers of Jesus, that were within the Roman Empire. And this is a really radical, it's hard for us to comprehend that now that we have a welfare system, but a welfare system didn't exist. And so this is a radically new idea that was so, so confronting to the officials of this era that, that not only the Jewish um, officials who had participated in, in the death of Jesus, but suddenly the Roman Empire, the state, starts to actively persecute and oppress the Christian community because it was growing so rapidly, in part because of these actions, because of high resource sharing, because of the way they were stepping out and caring for people in a way that had never been seen before. All right, so we've got persecution happening. It starts there. It's, it's, if we could go into this, it would be great. We can't today. Um, it's a real complex thing, but basically between around uh, the time that Jesus ascended, which is around 30, and up to 312, so over about 250, 300 years, the persecution of the church goes up and down according to who is in charge of the Roman Empire, so the emperor at that time. So we have some real infamous accounts like Emperor Nero who fed Christians to lions as entertainment for the public. Um, we also have ones that are less well known of persecution that wasn't violent, but that was uh, systematic persecution is the way I would put it, where emperors would intentionally remove anyone who was a self-professed Christian from any position of authority um, or intellectual positions in the community in an attempt to stop them from having an influence over broader society. But this didn't work. <laughs> so much so that one of the emperors who's really wrestling with how to squash and bring down this movement that just keeps growing, um, he, he decides to try and institute a welfare system within the pagan religion community, religious community because he sees that as the greatest threat to the Roman Empire religions and the broader state. And this is what he says about the early church. He says, For it is disgraceful that the impious Galileans, which is referring to Christians, support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that, they, that people lack aid from us. And so it's just this really powerful picture that even out of what they were doing, the people who were trying to stop what they were doing were so impacted by what was happening that they started to try and emulate and practice this stuff, um, but from a very, very different heart. All right, so that, that's our picture of the early church. We've got high resource sharing. We've got people meeting in small communities, largely localised, um, partly because of of the persecution they had to meet very much in they weren't able to meet in large gatherings you've got high level of miracles you've got high resource sharing and care for the poor and oppressed so much so that it's changing the structure of society we're going to move on to a significant event in 312 bc there is a military leader named constantine who converts to christianity 
and eventually comes into power as the new emperor of the Roman Empire. And under him, we see something radical happen, which is that for the first time, he institutes a law, which means that every religion has the right to freely worship. So this isn't just specific to Christians, this is across all religions, but it's the first time in history that this has ever existed, that all people have a right to practice their faith as a collective within the public community. Part of what this, what this influenced and caused um, is another really significant event that happened in 325 so, like, I'm not good at maths, what's that, 15 years afterwards? Something like that. Um, and that is the Council of Nicaea. It's probably something that most of us have heard, may not necessarily know what it is. The Council of Nicaea was the first time that Christian leaders from all of these little communities were able to get together because they weren't being so actively persecuted, they were able to get together and meet and actually discuss what it was that they believed as a collective, what they agreed upon. And so out of this particular event, they came up with a statement of faith that we actually sang earlier today. So it's also known as the Apostles' Creed, but this is a really foundational, fundamental document and amazing to think that after 300 years, a community were able to get together and come up with a real fundamental list of beliefs that they could agree on from all across the world. And this is a foundational document for us. If you have a chance to look it up and read it, I encourage you to. Um, this, the song that we sang really speaks to the core of it and we're going to sing it again at the end for you to reflect on after we look at church history. But that document was really, really powerful in unifying the church in their vision and purpose of what they believed and where they were going. After that, we have 379, uh, which is when another emperor, Emperor Theodosius, came in to power over the Roman Empire and he was also someone who identified as a Christian convert but his approach to things was quite different. He made Christianity the official religion of the empire. So suddenly we're starting to see a switch here from everybody is able to worship freely to now this is the religion and I'm going to unify everybody under this religion which means that other religions are now put into a secondary place and have less power than, um, than the Christian faith. So this, is, this changes things for Christians, both in positive and negative ways. So one of the things it does is it gives the church power and resources for the first time in history to start taking some of that welfare, caring for the poor and oppressed stuff, and actually starting to put it into structures and systems. So this is where we see the first hospital come into play. And this was a this was came out of the vision of people who were fairly high up and had high resources, but converted to Christianity and they gave up. There's this beautiful story of this, this Roman woman who's very high up in the empire and she 
she converts to Christianity. She, she decides to throw away all of her elegant garments and dresses as a slave woman and uses all of her resources to develop this hospital to care for people who can't afford medical care. This is the first time in history where medical care was made available not based on whether you could afford it or not. We also see care and accommodation systems start to come in, into place for abandoned babies and widows. We see um, public structures start to be challenged by the church. So structures that existed within the state that the church said, hey, 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 I don't think this is right. This is when they start to actually publicly speak against those things. So we see the first sermon ever preached by a bishop that is condemning the act of slavery, which is crazy. It takes a long time for it to actually stop, but this is when it starts to be spoken against for the first time. We also see um, church, churches start to meet in buildings, in public spaces, instead of in homes. We see temples, pagan temples, that have become disused because people have stopped practicing this, being converted into churches for the first time. We also see the appointment of clearer roles within the church structure. So we see... We see the appointment of bishops, which were church leaders responsible for a whole region. Um, so we see these roles and we see the church start to really structure itself because of the increased responsibility that they're taking on in this time. There's a whole lot more we could say, but we're going to leave it there for that section. All right, so we're going to move on to... The Great Schism, which is a really fun little name that we have in church history. Um, and basically what this was is a moment when the church split for the first time in a really significant way. So we see this is a geographical split that happens and it's split for both religious and political reasons. It's a, like most of history, there were complex reasons for this. But we see the East, which we would identify today to be the Orthodox tradition. We see the East split from the West, and the West is the Roman Catholic, uh, the Roman Catholic tradition. We're going to follow the West because that's actually where we come from and how we've gotten to where we are. So the East, there's a lot of awesome history in there, but we're not going to touch on it today. Um, just a fun little fact while we stop here is this is where the term the West comes from. So the idea that we talk about of Western countries, the West, this is where that comes from. Is it, was, it was a group of allied countries that functioned under a united political and religious system over many, many years. So we have the Western church split from the Eastern church, which is yeah quite sad in a lot of ways, but also the reality of, of human nature. <laughs> All right, so we're going to jump over to just before the Reformation. We're just going to do a bit of context setting. Around the 1500s, the church is kind of is reaching a height of its influence over society. This is a real peak moment of the church's power over society. So we've We've kind of seen the establishment of some structures. Those structures have continued to grow and build over 
about a thousand years. And what we see, by the time we hit 1500s, what we start to see is those structures start to be inbuilt into the state system rather than into, rather than being practiced and allowed by the church, those practices start to be adopted by the state. So that means that schools and hospitals, things that were introduced by the church to give equal access to all people, start to be run and responsibilities by the state. We also see church courts are established and they're responsible for, be, for looking after civil and religious matters. So they have, they have legal control over society at this point. We also see... Um, sorry, I just lost my place. We also see laws of taxation start to come in that tax the wealthy in order to redistribute resources to the poorest within society. This is, a, this is an idea that started way back, but now it's starting to be put into legislation that if you are wealthy and you didn't give a portion of your wealth to the poor, you could go to prison for it. So this is, this is something that starts to change radically. We also want to look at what, what's the church's position. So this is stuff that has happened that's caused the church to influence state structures. The church, at this point, is completely intertwined with political power. They're not separate entities anymore. They are completely enmeshed with each other. So the church has been influenced by the state, and the state has been influenced by the church. Ways we see this is that what they call humanistic texts, so these are like philosophical writers uh, who are talking about different ideas, those writings have infiltrated into the church in a way that they are considered of equal status to the Bible. So the Bible is no longer the singular sacred text of the church. Theologians, monks, the educated are experts in these different books, some of which, some of these theologians have never read the Bible and that is considered fairly normal practice. We also see uh, that the church, from a, from a theological perspective, the church is considered to have ultimate authority over what happens, over Christianity as a religion and over what happens in society. So no longer is the Bible the ultimate source of truth, the church is the ultimate source of truth. And why, like what's the rationality behind that, is closely interconnected with the role of the Pope. The Pope is the number one bishop, the most powerful person. He's the Bishop of Rome. And the Pope was considered to be Christ incarnate in their moment of time. So what I mean by that is that they considered the Pope, in the simplest form I can put it, they considered the Pope to be the embodiment of Christ. So what the Pope said had the same authority as what Jesus said. And so if they said something that contradicted what was in the Bible, their word went. That was the number one thing. Um, the other things in regards to church structure were that church services were spoken in Latin, which was the language of the educated, and the Bible had been translated into Latin. This meant that for most people, majority of people, couldn't read the Bible, had no idea what it said, and went to church but had no idea what was said during the service. So that's the na nature of, of where things have gotten to under the height of influence and power of the church. And this is where we see, this is where we see a really clear example of that self 
But that self-correcting mechanism that I was talking about earlier in cycles come into play. And that is an event that we very famously know as the Reformation. The Reformation was a revival or a dissension, depending on how you want to see it, um, of, of, the church, of reacting to a lot of this stuff that had happened around the church. And that primarily started by a German monk named Martin Luther. So Martin Luther is not Martin Luther King. Martin Luther was a medieval monk in the 1500s. Um, and he was a prophetic voice for his era, is how I would identify him. Martin Luther was a, an expert in the Bible. So different, different monks were like learned and focused on different texts. Martin Luther had made his way up because he was quite an intelligent man. He'd done a doctorate in the Bible. So he was one of the few experts in the Bible of his era. And as he read and studied the Bible and taught it at universities, and as he made his way up in the church's hierarchy, he started to be exposed to the corruption that was happening in the church. And he could see that it didn't line up with what he was reading in the Bible. And that was something that increasingly made him more and more uneasy. And it led to an event that most of us would know, um, where Martin Luther wrote this big theses, which was basically all of his points of challenge to what, the way that church was practicing. He called the 95 Theses and he nailed it to his church doors. That sounds so dramatic. It's actually fairly normal practice in his day. It was a way that they would put up things that they wanted to debate and they would invite and challenge other academics to debate with them over issues. So we, would, we see Martin Luther nail this 95 Theses to the door and it has an unprecedented effect. Like he had no idea what was coming at him. But suddenly the church, it goes all the way up to the Pope and every layer of the church is reacting and trying to squash this, this debate and these challenges that Martin Luther has set, but nobody can provide a sound answer to his challenge. Martin Luther debates many different people over a period of time. He writes many texts and he becomes more and more strong in advocating and challenging what has been said because he sees more and more corruption when nobody can answer his questions soundly. And Martin Luther's, one of his primary objections to the church, which I'm going to try and I'm going to oversimplify it, but basically it was this idea of indulgences that the church had introduced. And the premise of indulgences was that your salvation, your ability to get into heaven could be bought for financial, get from giving a financial contribution to the church or through good deeds. So these were things, these were certificates that the church would give out and it basically became a way of making a heck of a lot of money from people who had no idea what the Bible said or what the heck was being preached in churches. And the only way that they got any engagement was these travelling preachers who'd actually speak their language and this is what they would say to them, these messages. And Martin Luther saw this, he was disturbed by it and he challenged the church on it. And this led to a point of a pinnacle in Martin Luther's journey where he 
was put before what would be our equivalent of a supreme court. The most powerful rulers of the land were there and he was told that he, he needed to take back what he'd said. He needed to submit to church authority. The church had written an edict saying that this was a legitimate thing and therefore they needed to, he needed to submit to the church's authority on this. And Martin Luther's response again and again and again, and he had the same response in this, when he was given this choice, which was basically between life or death for him. He said, show me the error of my way and I will recant. She's just such a powerful, powerful line. And nobody could. Nobody could provide him with a sound argument. And so they, they condemned him as a heretic, which was the penalty of that is execution, usually by burning at the stake. But like any good story, this has a radical, unexpected turn of events where there were fairly high up, people in that court who supported Luther, who could see that what he was saying made sense and they could read and understand the Bible and so they had a different insight into the debate that was going on and they abducted him and they hid him from the people who were trying to kill him. They ended up bringing him to a city which became the safe haven of this movement and suddenly Martin Luther, who was expecting to die in that moment, found himself in a position where he was required, he had a mass following of people who were turning to him to figure out what it meant to follow Jesus, what it meant to be a Christian, because suddenly they'd lost faith in the institution of the church. And he, him, he and his colleagues had to figure out what the heck does it mean to meet together? How do we do this? How do we, how do we take what's good and what's based in the Bible and how do we discard the stuff that we know isn't right. And so some of the things that we see radically change in this particular era is that the Bible is translated into German from Greek to German for the first time so that anybody can read it. That was the language of, of Martin Luther's context. That was the language of the people. That was what most people understood. They also started to do church services in German for the first time. They, uh, they made communion acts accessible to all people, which was a radical thing. Only the priests and the monks had been able to access that, and they were considered to be almost these arbiters between God and man. And the reason that changed is because Martin Luther's fundamental premise of where he felt that the church had gone wrong was that Jesus is the only one who has the ability to forgive sin and to bring us back into connection with God. That was the premise of what he kept coming back for and fighting for. It's not the church, it is Jesus, and everybody has access to that. Not monks, not priests, everybody. Um, so communion was made accessible and people were able to sing in church for the first time. Uh, something that we consider a normalcy, but this was so radical that it started wars. People died standing up for this stuff. But what happened as a result of this movement is that we start to see oppression from the church start to oppress this movement. People are tortured and killed to tell, saying that they need to take back these beliefs and realign with what the church is saying. It is a fierce battle that goes on but once again it cannot be stopped and it seems to spread like this wildfire underneath the surface and the people that it draws most 
uh, the people, the what we would call the unchurched, they were attending church, but they didn't know what the heck was going on, what was being said. And when they had access to it, they just flocked to it in a fierce and beautiful way. We're going to look at one more point of history um, and then we will wrap up. So we're going to follow just a bit of context of these three lines. We've got Luther, who was our instigator of the Reformation, but we have two other leaders who were really significant figures and uh, took a similar but slightly different take on a lot of the stuff that Luther was challenging. So one is Zwingli, who was a Swiss man, and then we have Calvin down the bottom, who's another name that we probably know. We're not going to go into a lot of those differences today, but just because it's a fun fact to know where we've come from, we actually come through this branch of Protestantism. So this is, it's called Protestantism because of the way that that this strand of Christianity's break came out of protesting corruption that existed in the church at the time. And this is the, this is the theological leader that a lot of what our fundamental beliefs come from his strand of the way that he took that. We're actually going to follow the blue line, though, which is the Church of England. The Church of England is a bit of a weird one. It, it came out of the Protestant movement, but it, it came out in a really corrupt way. Um, King Henry VIII wanted to divorce his wife, and the Roman Catholic Church said no. So he said, well, all these other churches are kind of springing up everywhere. I'm just going to create my own church. Um, but <laughs> in saying that, there, there were a lot of people who really loved God um, and came out of this Church of England. The reason we're going to follow it is that alongside the Reformation, we actually see a real collapse of the empire, the Roman Empire, which was a, a whole bunch of countries that were united under one emperor. So because of a lot of these radical splits, we start to see that all dissipate. But we do see another power start to rise, which is the English Empire. So England has a lot of power over a lot of those countries in this particular moment in history. And the Church of England is a very powerful force across the world at this point. And this is the picture I want to give of you. We're going to skip forward to the 1700s now. And I want to give you a little glimpse into what the church was like at this particular point of history. So it says, Churches of the mid-18th century England all but ab abandoned orthodox historical Christianity and now preached a tepid kind of moralism that seemed to present civility and preservation of the status quo. And so, understandably, people looked less and less to the church for ultimate answers to their questions. And a fog of hopeless and brutal superstitious spiritualism crept over the land. So that's the context of what's happening in the 1700s. And in this context, we see another self-correcting moment happen in the church. We've got a lot of people who are attending church. The church has a fair bit of power in this particular point of time. But it's become a very watered-down version, version of church that's kind of lost its way. And in this time, we see three young men attending university start to meet together, named John and Charles, Charles Wesley, who were 
brothers and George Whitfield, and they start getting together and really wrestling with the question of what does it mean to follow God? And that journey starts with extreme legalism, where they just tried to do everything perfectly, and they got slagged with this um, negative name where their, their peers would call them the Methodists because they tried to do everything so methodically and perfectly. But where that earnest wrestle to figure out what it meant to follow God ended them out of that was that they came back to the same revelation once more that Jesus was the source that could provide salvation and transform lives and that transformed them it threw them away from the legalism they'd gone into and they said we people need to know this again and so they started to go out into fields and they started to preach this stuff um, they started to share, they, they started to, to go out to the unchurched, the people who weren't in churches, and they started to just yell out in these fields. And they had thousands and thousands of people come, and there was this crazy boom that happened. It was like people were hungry for this. They wanted it, and they weren't getting it in the churches. And so they started to come out and wrestle with these questions. And it was a fire that couldn't be stopped and once again it transformed the world it brought the world back into alignment with god's intention and one of the clearest ways we see this through the methodist movement is through a group of young people who were all impacted by this methodist movement which was seen as an extreme radical version of christianity that had gone too far it was, it was you, if you were connected to this, it was a fairly negative thing in England. And these, there was a group of people who'd all been impacted by this and they ended up becoming friends and getting together. And their name famously in history is the Clapham Sect. And the Clapham Sect is a group of people who based on this conviction and this revelation that Jesus is the one who saves, they are, are the group that are responsible for bringing an end to slavery in the English Empire, which was a radical moment of history that had been building for a very long time. And their break, their, their end to the existence of slavery came out of this united vision that they had of, of what it meant to follow God and to give their lives wholeheartedly to that. Um, so we're gonna finish there. I hope that you've, I know it's been a very dense, um, a very dense uh, teaching time today and I apologise for that. I, I hope that you can see here a little bit of the cycles that happen throughout history and the way that there is great beauty and also great darkness that has existed throughout church history. But in spite of it all, God seems to have these ways of bringing us back into alignment with him. And so as we finish, I just want to, I want to give you a couple of questions um, that I want you to think about. One of them we might just quickly discuss together and the other two I'm going to leave with you. Um, the first question, so just call out if there is anything that you want to share. If you don't, that's fine. Um, when we look at the cycles of history, is there anything that stands out to you? Is there anything that hits you particularly? I think, not that I know it, it's fascinating. 
um, is the idea like um, the twist of the truth and um, people wanting to turn church into like a profit making space and then the revelation that God gives to those who are truly seeking what he wants and then for them to sacrifice everything to bring God's truth out mm, I love that I'm going to try and summarise what you said. Um, what was the first bit again? Um, the turning the, uh, the true church into like a profit-making exercise where, you know, submitting people, the poor, mm. into keeping them in the dark in terms of education and mm. not giving them access to the Bible. Yeah. And then because they could make profit out of like basically selling salvation. Yeah, yeah. Um, which is slavery. And then, and then where God reveals his truth to certain people who begin to question things like yeah. Martin Luther yeah. and wanting to, even willing to die to bring the truth. Yeah. Out. So it's, it's those, that cycle that you've pointed out of, of corruption that eventually seems to happen in the church and then the way that God brings us back, brings us back. He seems to have a way of, of doing that, of bringing us back to what is actually true and important so that we don't wander too far off this way. Yeah, that's something that really sticks out to me too. So anything else here, Phil? I think, I think when you institutionalise, it's just these movements through the centuries, you know, the, the aim to institutionalise the church, I think the intention is good, you know, mm. starts, but then it almost always seems from history to remove people's own um, accountability, their own uh, responsibility to God, because it then becomes, okay, it's being taught to you, yeah. you have to do it, yeah. and then then you can ride along that way, mm. but then it doesn't change your mind. So, uh, yeah. yeah institutionalizing so. can actually defeat what the intention is for God working in the heart. Yeah, yeah, but there seems to be there seems to be this inevitable institutionalization of church throughout history, but that, that seems to also end in people losing sight of that bigger vision. Um, and I think that's a great point of something that I have identified is that we actually don't have much control over these big picture cycles, and I think that's something we can rest in. But I think it's also important to know where we sit in that cycle, or we can blindly repeat the mistakes of the past. Um, and that actually leads to the second question, um, which because of time, we're not going to talk about today, but we will continue. This will be followed through next week when we look at the church now, um, is where do you think we sit in this cycle in history? This is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about, and I think it radically changes how we engage with what is church now, depending on how we engage with that question and understand where we fit. So where do you think we sit in that cycle? And just to give you a real simple description of the cycle um, to help with maybe understanding that, is that you've got these eras of persecution and oppression of the church. You've got these eras of alignment where, where there seems to be this allied relationship between the church and the state. Then you see this infusion of the church and state where they start to become overlapped and the politics of the state starts to impact the church and vice versa. And then you see these moments of self-correction or revival, dissension, depends on where you sit, how you see it. Um, but God seems to have this way where he, 
he self-corrects and that seems to be then persecuted in some form by the power, that, whether that's within the church or the state, and often it's an intermingling of both. Um, so that's, that's the simple cycle that I would identify. Um, I would love, if anyone wants to talk about it, I'd love to tell you where I think we sit in that, but for now I think um, it's just a good question to reflect on maybe over the next week. Yeah, Shay? Can I ask you something like, I know that because I come from the Catholic faith and with what you were saying about the Pope, mm. right, um, I think it's still very true with the Pope, mm. with what you were saying in terms of how he's seen as, you know, Jesus incarnate, mm. because a lot of people like in Catholicism still see the Pope as this figure who is, you know, holy and they respect everything he says. And, but to the point where what the Pope is doing at the moment, which I am disagreeing with, with what you're saying about the state, is he's starting to want to please the masses. And the reason is probably because he's lost the masses from coming to church. Mm. And maybe they're looking at the way the Catholic you know, um, church is behaving in many ways and people are withdrawing from that. Mm. But that doesn't mean they're going back to God. They're just withdrawing and sitting back and not not moving. Yeah. As saying, because they firmly believe they're Catholics and they'll never be anything else. Yeah, yeah. And um, that, again, trying to please the masses and then almost legalizing what the state is legalizing. Yeah, In terms yeah. like same-sex marriage and abortion and things yeah. like that. So for me, that church, yeah, it's confusing. Yeah, for sure. So Shara was just saying that she feels like she can see the church and the state within the Roman Catholic tradition um, overlapping. I would argue that, that that could be that. I think that's the case across the whole church to some extent. That's a battle we've got going on right now. That I think it's it can be just as as real of a battle for us um, in our tradition as for. But it's it's a real battle, and I think that has to do with the context of time that we're in. Is how much do we engage? with what the state is saying and how much do we do we abandon that to follow Jesus in what he's calling us to. Um, and I, something I just would like to highlight from that is that, that that Roman Catholic tradition is part of our heritage. I think it's something in the Protestant tradition because of how dramatic the Reformation was that we can kind of other ourselves from. But if we do, we cut our legs off and we started in the 1500s. I don't think that's very compelling. I actually think it's really important that we own that history, that that's part of our history, and that's part of what's shaped us into what we are today. And there's strengths, there's some real significant strengths there that we've lost, one of which is they were a united body for so long. Look at us now, like, really, if this was an accurate portrayal, there'd be hundreds of these split-offs, because that was one of the impacts of Protestantism, is that suddenly we all started to spurt off every time we had a slightly different idea. Um, and so there's, there's positives and negatives to each of these things. All right, so last, the last um, thing I'm going to leave you with, and then we're going to finish with a song. So we've got, where do you think we sit in the cycle of history? Think about it, pray about it, research it this week. I encourage you to. The last one is, what are the warnings and wisdom that we can take from history as we wrestle with what it looks like to be the church today? That's something I want you to think about, is think through this stuff and think about what are the mistakes that we don't want to get caught up in and what's the wisdom that we can take in how we engage with what it means to follow Jesus today. All right, so we're going to finish with the Apostles' Creed one more time, which is this statement of faith that the early Christians came up with of what are the fundamentals of what we believe.
There you go. So these are, I mean, how old does that make these words? If it was, if they came up with it in 325 CE and it's now 2022, 2000 and something years. So good at maths, work it out. Very old words. If you'd like to stand and sing with us, we'd love you to. Jesus comes again. 